Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Lunar Parallax As a child, I often woke up late at night, gripped by absolute terror. I would tiptoe down the hall to my parents' bedroom and approach my father's side of the bed. I don't know why I chose him instead of my mother. My mother was the more comforting one. Perhaps I just trusted his opinion more than hers when it came to the matters at hand. I would gently stir him awake and inform him of whatever it was that had rocked me into my petrified wakefulness. Sometimes I was scared there was a giant, undiscovered meteor hurtling towards the earth. Sometimes I was scared a nuclear bomb would go off, or that an escaped tiger would get into the house. Other times the fear was more vague, something I couldn't define but was still afraid of. But no matter how irrational my fear might have been, My father would sit me down, and in his patient, soft-spoken way, he would tell me the age-old Roosevelt quote, that there was nothing to fear but fear itself. I didn't know exactly what that meant at the time, although it did usually make me feel better. But all these years later, I realized that my father was right. The only thing we should be afraid of is fear itself. The reason I know that is because I've met fear itself. I've stood before it, seen it face to face. And I'm certain that fear itself is a spectacle worthy of our terror. I made a living shooting the moon. It wasn't really what I expected to be doing at my age, but things change. For most of my adult life, I didn't put too much importance into my career. I always thought of myself as someone who simply took orders. It wasn't until I'd moved to Montana in my early 40s that I began to spend time doing things that I was actually passionate about. For me, that unlikely passion came in the form of a camera. I had always liked photography, but never had the chance to really indulge in it. But when I moved to Montana, I developed a sudden obsession with the moon. I was captivated by it. I shot photos of the moon in all its phases, hung before a starry backdrop, 
over every horizon I could find. Eventually, I began to create composite images that incorporated the moon into the rugged, sometimes bleak landscape of the American West. I shot pictures of the moon over dilapidated mining towns, the tin roofs of abandoned structures illuminated with a grainy sheen. I shot pictures of the moon through the large trees around Seely Lake. I shot pictures of the moon hanging above Granite Peak, casting a silky glow over the Beartooth Mountains. My fascination never ceased, but still it was nothing more than a hobby to me. At that point, it had never occurred to me that my photographs could turn into a lucrative career. But all of that changed because of a chance connection I made with one of my neighbors. I lived next door to an old woman named Grace Catlin. She was a strange but kind lady who had a penchant for dialing 911 over any trivial thing. One time, she called the police because her welcome mat blew away in the wind. I saw the police on her doorstep, stifling their laughter as they responded to her call. Later that day, I happened to cross the missing welcome mat when I was out on a walk. When I returned it to her, she invited me inside for a cup of coffee. As we sat in her densely furnished living room, making small talk, she mentioned to me that her daughter, Nadia, was a former editor at National Geographic. She offered to show some of my photos to her daughter, who, to my astonishment, quite enjoyed them. Nadia put me in touch with a few media outlets, and I began my unexpected climb to exposure. When it started, I received a few offers for small features in lesser-known magazines, all of which I gladly accepted. Just the idea of my photographs appearing on the glossy pages of a magazine was exhilarating to me. I never thought my work would see any sort of audience. Four months after my first magazine feature, a relatively well-known publishing house contacted me to ask if they could license one of my photos for the cover of an upcoming novel by a writer named Spencer Jackson. The picture they wanted to use was one of a large crescent moon above a shadowy mass of evergreen trees. Backlit by the stars, the silhouettes of the trees are steeply pointed, almost appearing like the teeth of a giant saw blade. The book on which the publishing house wanted to use the photo was a suspense novel called Under the Watch of a Savage God. I gladly accepted the offer, and the novel went on to become a massive hit. From there, my newfound popularity began to snowball. Soon, my photographs were being sold in half a dozen galleries across the United States. It happened so quickly it was hard to believe. I was dumbfounded at my sudden success. But through it all, my muse never changed. I never stopped staring at the moon, the one subject that never ceased to fascinate me. As I stared at it nightly through the viewfinder of my camera, I was at times certain that the glowing spherical form contained some type of secret. I would wonder if there was something deeper than the brilliant shining surface. It wasn't that I was partial to some kind of moon-themed conspiracy theory. I didn't think that the moon was hollow, that it played host to a race of shape-shifting reptilians. I was just attracted to the idea that the moon was a symbol of something else, something spiritual, something etheric, that it held answers to the great quandaries of life. 
I didn't know where these notions came from, but I could feel deep down inside myself that there was something of great significance to be seen when I looked at the moon. On the night that I went out in Medora, North Dakota, it was a rare blue moon. Not only was it the second full moon of that month, but the moon was exceptionally close as well. I drove from the little bed and breakfast in town where I was staying and parked my car out among the Badlands 15 miles away. I had my Canon 5D Mark III, a 400mm lens, a tripod, I had flashlights and a first aid kit, and a cumbersome hard case full of other gear that I won't bother to list here. My point, though, is that I thought I was going prepared. I stepped out of my car and set up my tripod. I mounted my camera, and as I did, I heard a series of noises in the thicket to my left. I paused and stared at the thicket in silence, waiting for a sound, for some sign of movement. But nothing happened, so I returned to the moon, feeling acutely exposed as I basked in its lambent glow. I was ready to take my first series of shots when another sound came. Only this time it was different. It wasn't the sound of movement, but of breathing. I was perplexed at the idea, because I could see for a ways in basically every direction, and it didn't seem plausible that I could hear someone breathe without being able to see them. Still, there it was, the rhythm of an exhalation, just on the edge of what was audible. I walked around the perimeter of my car, scanning the ground with my flashlight, but the only footprints I could see were my own. So I shrugged it off and returned to my camera. As I pressed my eye to the viewfinder, I heard the sudden thud of a car door closing. I jolted with sudden shock, turning my head on a swivel. But the only car I could see was my own. It took me a few seconds to realize that I had left my car door open. And it took me a few more seconds to realize that my keys had been inside. I walked over and pulled on the driver's side handle, but the door didn't give. It was locked. I cursed myself for being so careless. At no point did I really stop to consider what could have shut the door in the first place. It wasn't especially windy, and nothing had been leaning up against the door. There was no reason for it to abruptly slam shut as it did but I was too focused on the fact that I had just effectively stranded myself to wonder about what had caused it. I patted my pockets, feeling for my phone, but that too had been left in the car. I knew that it would freeze overnight, and that I needed to find help before it did. But I also knew that the expression, once in a blue moon, didn't come about for no reason. The moon, as it presented itself to the world that night, was a rare spectacle. It was tinted a chalky blue color and seemed to float just above the ruddy peaks of the Badlands. And even more was its size. It was so massive that it was almost alarming. It was as if it was seconds away from crossing into our atmosphere and crashing down through the sky. 
Unable to forgo the opportunity, I shot as many photos as I could, canvassing my entire field of view with photographs that I would later stitch together into a composite. When I was done, I collapsed my tripod and stashed my camera gear in a bush a few yards from my car. It was too heavy and awkward to take with me, but I didn't want to leave it out as an invitation should a rogue thief drive by while I was gone. But before I left, I popped the memory card out of my camera and slid it into my pocket. With the circumstances as bad as they were, I was unwilling to even entertain the idea of losing the photos I had just taken. I zipped up my jacket and began walking down the road I had taken out of town. I had passed a gas station a few miles back, and I hoped that they could call AAA or maybe a tow truck that could pop my door open with a wedge or a coat hanger. I was optimistic, but my journey wasn't without its anguish. I was furious at myself, yes, but something else was afflicting me as well. The atmosphere had become oppressive in a way I struggled to pronounce. As I walked along the shoulder of the road, I was at times convinced that I could hear a pair of footsteps echoing my own. It sounded almost like someone was following me, not a few paces behind. But each time I turned back, I could see only the lonely road, enveloped by blackness as it receded towards the badlands. I'm hoping that I don't give you the impression that I'm a novice outdoorsman who's frightened of his own shadow. I've spent a lot of nights out there, alone, vulnerable to whatever waits out there in that darkness. But that night was the first time I've ever felt anything like that. It was like something was bearing down on me like I could feel it breathing, and it was closing in, always closing in. As I rounded a bend in the road, something came into view. I looked out and saw a silent, still lake, its opal surface like a great unbroken pane of glass. It was set next to a meadow, surrounded by scotch pines. I couldn't recall having seen the lake on the drive-in, but that wasn't what struck me when I looked at it. The thing that held me there was the dimly shining light emanating from the far shore of the lake. It appeared, from where I stood, to be a residence of some kind. I was apprehensive about knocking on a stranger's door unannounced, but I was more apprehensive about staying out there on that road. Veering off the road, I began to walk across the meadow. I considered for a moment how odd it was that a house wouldn't have a driveway or even a dirt road leading to it. Did the people that lived there not own a car? I suspected that they would have made a trail with foot traffic at the very least. Or, as I told myself, trying hard to stay calm, could it be that this is just a hunting cabin? or somebody's lakeside vacation home, and that the owner, practical as they were, didn't see it as necessary to go through all the trouble of making a driveway, and that, if anything, you should be thankful for the fact that you need their help on a night when they actually happen to be there. When I got closer and began to trace the perimeter of the lake, my suspicions appeared to be confirmed. I could see a small, one-room cabin, the cabin had a single window overlooking the lake. 
The soft glow coming from the inside was the source of the light I had seen. As I approached the front door of the cabin, I silently recited the favor as I had planned it out in my head. Sorry to bother you, I would say, but I seemed to have locked myself out of my car. But as it turned out, I wouldn't even get that far. I knocked softly on the door, hoping not to disturb the occupants. A few long seconds went by and there was no answer. I stepped over and peered in the window. The inside was as sparse as the exterior suggested. A single unshaded bulb hung from the ceiling. A wooden table and two chairs sat in the middle of the room. And in the back, hanging from the far wall, was a print of a painting that I was surprised to recognize. It was a work called Spring by Andrew Wyeth. I had always been simultaneously intrigued by it and scared of it. The painting, which is rendered in dull autumn colors, shows the body of an old man lying half-buried in a small snowdrift. The man's eyes are closed, but his expression is not one of sleep. You can see it clearly in the slack structure of the man's face that he's dead. I stared at the painting, gripped by how eerie it was to see it in that setting. But then something tore me free from my trance. The cabin's door, just to my side, abruptly swung open. Inside, I could see the face of a slant, bald man staring back at me. He looked to be older than me, but not by much. I stuttered for a moment, finding myself unable to explain how he could have opened the door from the inside when I had just looked through the window and seen the cabin empty. But before I could get a word out, the man spoke. I see you finally made it, he said. For a moment, I forgot that I was even in need of help. I just stared at the man, gripped by something that felt like paralysis. After another moment went by, the man stepped aside. He gestured as if to invite me in. I see you finally made it, he said again, taking great care to enunciate each syllable. I need help. I finally managed to say. My car. I pointed out across the lake in the direction I had come. Then, dumbly, I repeated, I need help. Of course you do, the man said, but he made no effort to move. He just held the door open to me, beckoning me inside. But first, he went on, don't you want to know what you came all this way for? I'm sorry, I said. I think you have me confused with someone else. Were you expecting company? Despite what my words suggested, I found myself stepping into the squat little cabin, as if following the suggestion of some invisible lead. Company, the man said. No, I wasn't expecting company. I was expecting you. I apologize for asking, I said, but do I know you? The man simply smiled and sat down, gesturing to the other chair, inviting me to sit as well. You know a lot of things, he said, but you don't know the story I'm going to tell you, the story you came all this way to hear. I again wanted to suggest that the man had me confused with someone else, 
that I didn't come to hear a story, but to find help. But reasoning with him seemed futile. So, the man asked, shall I begin? My response was something that surprised even me. I had apparently decided to try bartering with him. If you tell me your story, I said, will you help me get back to my car after? Of course I will, the man said. But it's not my story. It's your story. Responding to a statement like that seemed inconceivable. I managed only to glare at the man in disbelief. He apparently took this as an invitation, and he began to tell his story. There once was a soldier, he said, and that soldier was injured in battle and could no longer serve an active combat position. So the top officers in this man's army reassigned him to serve as a ceremonial attendant at funerals of fallen soldiers. The country under which this army operated was much like America, but was nevertheless not America. And this country had a custom in which army soldiers, both current and retired, would receive the ceremonial attendance of a uniformed soldier at their funeral, no matter how long it had been since they had served. The soldier would arrive at the funeral, where he would play a military anthem and present an offering of thanks to the fallen soldier's family. He would fold the country's flag and leave it on the lap of the fallen soldier's next of kin. And then, when his duty had been served, he would march off, leaving the family to mourn. Every day, this soldier, who had been injured in battle and could no longer serve an active combat position, would receive the time and location of a funeral he was to attend in order to fulfill his ceremonial obligation. And every day, he drove from cemetery to cemetery, playing the country's anthem and giving flags to grieving families of fallen soldiers. And for the most part, he liked his job. He saw it as a small way he could help out in the face of tragedy. He gave a final salute to crying mothers, ensuring them that they had raised honorable sons and daughters, and he could see it in the eyes of these tearful, despondent families that his ceremonial contribution was worth something to them, that it made them shine that much more love down on the one they lost, that it comforted them in some way. Not that it removed the pain from the situation, because nothing could do that, but that it made them remember whoever they lost with pride and honor. One day, though, this soldier, once a fallen soldier himself, experienced something odd. He attended the funeral of a soldier he was certain to have already buried. The photograph of the soldier, displayed at the burial, was identical to a photo he'd seen at another funeral not two weeks before. Their families looked completely different and neither soldier shared a common name. But both of their faces, right down to the finest detail, were exactly the same. As he looked at the picture, and then back at the crying family, 
The soldier found himself wondering if either of these young men knew that somewhere out there, and apparently not even all that far away, there lived an exact replica of themselves. What he realized in that moment was that two things, no matter how complex, could appear completely identical and yet remain entirely separate. This concept began to wear on him, and soon he found himself wondering if he too had a double out there somewhere in the world. From there, his fear and uncertainty deepened. He could no longer be sure if his house was his house, or one that just looked like it, if his car was his car, or just an identical one. He felt like his relationship to basically everything in the world had been shifted. Everything he saw and encountered had the potential to be not only what it appeared to be, but something else as well. Something alien. Something unknown. Every person he talked to could at once be themselves and someone else entirely. He could be certain of the identity of nobody least of all, himself. Eventually, he had to resign from his position in the military for fear that his paranoia would result in some sort of disaster. He moved to the countryside, somewhere in the lonely, mountainous region of his country, and he spent all his time there focusing on one thing, one thing that could not be duplicated, one thing that was on display every night, shining brightly for all to see. He spent years staring at it as it glowed above him, seemingly suspended in the night sky. At some point, he managed to twist his memories of serving at funerals. The event became less shocking as time went on, and eventually he managed to write it off completely. Surely he had seen the man die once, he told himself, but the second time, he must have imagined it. Or perhaps it was only in his memory that the two men looked identical, and that if he were to compare their pictures side by side, they would look no more alike than any other pair of strangers. But then one night, that thing he watched in the sky came just a little bit closer, closer than it had been in a long time. And as this natural glowing satellite drew near in the night sky, something changed. Something that this man had no understanding of. The ground, which now felt so solid beneath his feet, began again to seem foreign in some way. As if, on that night, while that giant shining body hung so close in the night sky, the world in which he lived had become a completely different place. But that's where this man was wrong. This man, who was once a soldier, but was injured in battle and could no longer serve an active combat position, was not seeing a new, uncanny version of the world. And he was not seeing the world as it always had been, either. But he was seeing things that his mind wasn't capable of comprehending. Things for which he had no framework of understanding. So his mind tried, in its way, to make sense of his surroundings. 
When he found a structure of inexplicable size and shape in the woods, his mind told him it was a wooden hut. And when he was approached by the thing that made that structure, his mind told him it was a man. But in truth, the structure he had found himself in was nothing like a wooden hut, and the thing with which he was speaking was nothing like a man. And as he sat in that place that was not a wooden hut, this man that was not a man told him things he couldn't believe, things that didn't correlate with the life he'd remembered living. But because those things he saw and experienced that night were not exactly real, he was able to write off the story as nothing but a fiction. But some small thought still lingered. When I finally managed to leave that place and get back to my car, I can confirm that the thought did linger. The man didn't resist when I got up and excused myself from his cabin. I ran doggedly, as if stumbling through a fog, and when I got back to my car I didn't hesitate to smash the driver's side window with a rock I found nearby. I loaded my camera gear and sped back to the bed and breakfast, sweat pouring from my face. The story the man had told which he had referred to as my story, did not tell the story of my life, at least not as I remembered it. It's true that I was in the military, and it's also true that I served at funerals, playing taps and presenting flags to family members of deceased soldiers. But I can't recall ever suffering any sort of injury, and I never attended the service of a soldier that I'd already seen buried. But still, just like the man had said, something lingered. I couldn't help but acknowledge that a part of myself identified with this story. Have you ever remembered something that didn't happen to you? That was how I felt on that night, as I lay in my cramped bedroom at the bed and breakfast. The tale had evoked in me a frantic wave of sensation a feeling that the things the man told me were the components of a true story. Perhaps not a story that had happened to me, exactly, but to somebody much like me, somebody whose identity is indistinguishable from my own. The following morning, I packed my car. I patched up the window I had broken with duct tape and cardboard and got ready to leave town. Before I went, though, I took another trip back over towards the Badlands. I pulled over on the shoulder in the spot where I had veered off the road, but in the daylight the scene was entirely different. There was no lake, though there were deep lines in the terrain from erosion, as though a lake had been there long ago. And there was no wooden hut, either. There was no structure of any kind, in fact but, from what I could loosely determine, in the spot where the hut had been stood four symmetrical pine trees, their forms creating a boxy shape at the edge of the meadow. I wondered what I had seen the night before, wondered who or what I had communicated with. It wasn't until two weeks after I'd gotten home from North Dakota that I finally looked at the photos I had taken. 
It wasn't that I expected to see something heinous or terrifying in them. I just felt a strange subconscious aversion to returning to the memory of that night. As it happened, though, I did see something in those photos. In one of the pictures, the seventh in the sequence, the moon appears changed. Its craters are formed differently, the little pockmarks dotting the surface in formations completely alien to my eyes. I've spent a lot of time staring at pictures of the moon, and what I saw in exposure number seven was something else. It wasn't the moon that I've spent years pursuing. It was a replacement. A replica that stood in the moon's place for the briefest of seconds. If you spend a decent amount of time studying the moon, you learn about something called parallax. Parallax is the effect that causes a single object to appear differently from two different vantage points. It's what astronomers use to measure the distance of various celestial bodies from Earth. What I saw when I looked at the seventh exposure, and what I experienced that night in the Medora Badlands, was, to me, something like the inversion of parallax. Instead of a single reality appearing differently from two different vantage points, two separate realities appeared the same from a single vantage point. I saw a moon that was not our moon, but one too similar to be considered different either. And I encountered the story of a life that was not my life, and yet was too much like mine to be defined as separate. And through it all, I came to know just how close we are to the things that we think don't exist, the things that look familiar but cannot quite be identified, the faces we think we recognize but haven't ever seen. They seep into our world from that other place, and sometimes they're closer than we think. Hey, thanks for listening to my podcast. If you enjoy it, I'd like to remind you that I have a full-length cosmic horror audiobook available on my Patreon. It's called Solace, and it tells the story of a journalist who becomes obsessed with a series of strange disappearances. It's over eight hours long, and it's broken up into five parts. It has a private RSS feed, so you can listen to it on the Apple Podcast app or whatever other podcasting app you like. Or, of course, you can listen to it on the Patreon mobile app or desktop or whatever. And you can get it for just three bucks. Even if you just subscribe for a month, listen to it, and then go back to being a free listener, that's totally cool with me. And you get a $3 audiobook out of it, which is a pretty good deal. You can listen to the first 30 minutes of it in the episode titled Solace. There's a link in the show notes as well as in the bio of my show, but if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. As always, thank you for listening. And please be careful of that gaunt figure that's looming in the corner of your basement. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.